Welcome to the Tactics Meeting, Episode 7, Western Response Resource List, for Monday, March 1st, 2021. In this episode, we'll be talking about the Nestucca Spill, Exxon Valdez, the birth of the Western Response Resource List, Deepwater Horizon, and much, much more, so stick around. I'm here with Scott Knudsen, recently retired from the United States Coast Guard from District 13 as a member of the DRAT. Scott, welcome to the program. Thank you, Dan. And Sonia Larson, the Washington State Department of Ecology. Welcome, Sonia. Thanks, Dan. So, Scott, you've been out of the Coast Guard now for a little over a a year. We're trying to drag you back (laughs) into the response community. I know kicking and and screaming. Uh, I've got... Uh, friends of yours who've said hi, so I'll say hi to you on their behalf. Hi, Scott. And what have you been doing in retirement before we jump into the into the worldwide response resource list, which is going to be our topic for today? Well, I retired uh, last year, end of uh, you know, the end of the summer, about well, a year and a half ago, at the end of the summer, and uh, pre-COVID. And one of the projects I started working on initially was. I started with about a 20 ton rock project and uh, um, and it's just, I was gonna do a little modification of my front yard. Um, and that's turned into about five phases, which is now about 180 tons of rock, um, well over close to 200 cubic yards of dirt, uh, lots of uh, new grass, uh, new John Deere tractor, the whole thing. And uh, so I've been basically uh, creating uh, what I call an infinity lawn uh, from my front window. So I look out, have these rocks and all of this uh, dirt and, uh, and stone. It's, uh, it's been a great project and it's almost been an everyday project uh, for a year or it was for a year. I've got one phase left and uh, that's to bring in some, some eight, nine, 10 ton rocks um, and finish right in front of my picture window in front of my house. So that's the rock project. Uh, a lot of people want to know I'm still working on my cabinets, so I'm embarrassed to say, but that was always a, a topic that would come up. So is it really just an excuse to buy a new tractor? Not really, uh, but it, uh, it, but I, it was nice to, to buy it. Well, that's you know, great. If you, if you can't travel and you can't go to Hawaii, you might as well buy a lawn tractor. That's right, that's right. We, I, I'm ready to go to Hawaii, frankly. So, Scott, we're going to talk about the Western Response Resource List, now called the Worldwide Response Resource List. You were there at the the beginning, bringing this, what is now, I find, the most useful response database in the world. Uh, What was your inspiration to make that happen? How did we get to from there to here? Well, I think you have to kind of go back and define what was going on. And uh, so for us, um, you know, and many of us weren't even on hired at this time, but in the Stucca in the December of 1988, uh, it was a, a tank barge uh, off the coast of outer Washington, uh, was cut open by the props on the, on the tug. And that oil ended up um, oiling the coastline of Washington and uh, up in BC. And eventually, uh, you know, went on to be, you know, a pretty significant spill, uh, a lot of oil recovery, uh, a lot of burning of timber on the beach. That 
was followed by a spill in March of 1989. So a few months later, the Valdez spill took place. And if you think about it, uh, Washington State uh, and our spill responders, we had this core of spill responders that were here. So they were already working the Destucca. Uh, then, of course, they headed up towards Alaska for that spill. And, you know, those core responders like Al Allen and, and uh, uh, Dr. Ed Owens and Dr. Sharon Christofferson uh, were this kind of this core piece uh, along with that. Uh, we had a lot of fishermen that were brought in to you know, work the spill up in Valdez. So there was a lot of experience gained on that spill, especially here in the Northwest, especially people that lived here in the Northwest. Um, the Oil Pollution Act of 1990 followed up in uh, August of 1990, was put into effect. And through that process, there was a, a number of things set up. In 1990, also the oil spill industry set up something called the Marine Spill Response Corporation. And all of this was being spun up um, at, you know, at the same time. So MSRC from 90 to 93, 94 was building ships, hiring people, putting in policy, uh, putting in all the pieces that uh, make up a spill response corporation. At the same time, the US Coast Guard uh, had $30 million and, and uh, guys like Tom Coe and Bruce Shuckman were designing equipment to be sent out to the districts. Um, there was the setup of the district response advisory teams uh, for the districts and we were receiving equipment, it was coming in. <clears throat> and I was hired as the district response advisory team engineer. And part of my, my, my work was to you know, have a handle on equipment, not only the Coast Guard's new equipment and how to operate it and how to deploy it and put it in the water, uh, but also uh, handle on all of the industry equipment. And at the same time, new ships were coming in like the Shearwater came in for Clean Sound. So we had this core of folks like Roland Miller was the president of Clean Sound. And we had this core that had been up in Exxon Valdez. But then, and all of a sudden there was this, all these new jobs, there was this gap. So we had people come in, tanker captains, uh, tanker captain come in from Exxon Valdez was part of the community. We had a mate come in from the uh, one of the, Val uh, not the Valdez, but from Exxon. Um, we had a lot of Alaska fishermen get hired at that time. I came out of the uh, offshore drilling industry and came to Washington State and took one of the jobs. But there was this huge influx. And though we had this core of really smart people, all of a sudden we had this large influx of uh, new folks uh, with professional backgrounds, but maybe not that much oil experience and, uh, or that much spill experience. So we were all sort of learning at the same time. So we were going to each other's exercises, meeting each other. And this is sort of where we started the, the Northwest response community or coordination of the community. We all started at the same time. We all had to you know, spin up organizations out of whole cloth um, and, and try to make things that were on paper into jobs um, that made sense. And so with that, one of the things we would ask every time we'd go out and and meet folks is that, you know, I'd, I'd meet with Clean Sound or meet with MSRC, uh, NRC, is I'd like an equipment list. You know, I'd like, you know, not only do I have to know what my equipment is, I need to know what your equipment is. And it's not online, it's not on a website, you know, and they, I would get a hard copy. And, uh, and that was great. So at one point, I had this entire bookshelf um, filled with three ring binders with hard copies of equipment. 
Um, at the same time, part of the open was we're, we've got to have area contingency plans. And in the area contingency plans, we have to list equipment. So we had that onus of in that area contingency plan, we would put that equipment in or put those equipment lists in from, the, from our hard covered sheets, but then they would become dated in time. So that really wasn't quite working that well for us, Dan. So that was kind of the initial, that was the initial start. And, uh, and, and it, it moves from there, but I'll take a breather right here. Okay, yeah, I remember my my very first job. So I worked for Clean Sound. I came into Clean Sound in 1997. So maybe that was the third wave after uh, people got uh, got got hired. Um, I know you were talking about the tanker captains and tanker mates. I worked for those guys, and uh, still talk to one of them on a pretty regular basis. Um, and my first drill. I was doing the equipment lists and I was using a yellow legal notepad and I would add the piece of the next piece of equipment that arrived. And then I'd sit there with a calculator and I'd be re-adding up storage capacities, re-adding up boom lengths, re so over and over again. I spent like six hours doing nothing but retotaling these uh, equipment lists on a yellow legal pad thinking, Gosh, have they never heard of a spreadsheet? I mean, what? There's got to be a better way than, than doing this. I'm never going to be caught up. There will never be an accurate list at this rate. Well, and I think that was the case. And I think, uh, obviously, you know, you saw the problem. And in about that same time frame, because we had this strong community um, and that we decided to work together early and Sharon Christofferson and Roland Miller were fundamental in, in basically putting us on the track of that this is not going to be you know a fight of separate camps this is going to be the same camp we're a small community and we're all in the same boat so with that um we had a meeting probably one of our first meetings probably at clean sound and uh we had the idea of let's put all the equipment on a spreadsheet and you know and and you know all all the objections that you might expect came up you know there there's for some folks that are in, in industry that uh, have excess equipment to the equipment caps, they would be interested in maybe not showing all that equipment because if there was a big spill somewhere else in the world, somewhere else in the United States, they could run that equipment and sell it and, and, and it, you know, for that spill or charge out for that spill. So there was all kinds of mistrust and different things kind of going on with the entire group and then some folks just didn't want to share the information you know it was like that's power you know those lists are power and um you know those were those were and i've and i've mentioned it many times those were the most contentious meetings of our groups in the initial days and we just i don't know if we got anywhere in the first meeting other than here's the concept and spoke for an hour or two Six months later, we got together and, you know, the ideas began to thaw and people started to say, you know, that maybe this is a good thing. And uh, so we eventually got to the point where we put the spreadsheets together. Uh, we, uh, we basically, there's no requirements. We made it ad hoc. Um, there, it was as, uh, as loose as they wanted to do it. But the key was individual equipment owners put their equipment in and then updated it where it was located and uh, 
And if they removed it or added to it, uh, they put equipment in. And you got to realize, it, even through this process, there was a lot of equipment ordered throughout the United States to meet the requirements of Open 90. So equipment was being delivered all the time. So there was new equipment uh, coming in to be tracked. So it wasn't as stagnant as it is in 2021. Um, so, um, so that really, I think, really helped. And, and once we had that Excel spreadsheet, which the Coast Guard hosted on its website for, for years, we hosted it right up until the attack on the World, the attack on the World Trade Center. And at that point, um, you know, the Coast Guard, a lot of the Coast Guard sites went dark um, because of security and concerns. So um, Jen West came out and said, look, instead of having, uh, you know, this, this key database for the Northwest on a site that, you know, can go off and on, we'd love to host it. And Jen West uh, um, came in and did that. And, you know, and John Murphy did a great job and Al, uh, Al Hilshire. Um, so we were really pleased. And once we started that connection with Jen West, the world, um, and we had an Excel spreadsheet, um, we were getting, we were get, starting to have a real tool. And, uh, you know, and that, and that tool, um, you know, basically went to spreadsheets and then folks started tracking spread, using the spreadsheet in the exercises uh, to track equipment and, uh, and, you know, much more accurate than it was uh, in the earlier days where we just, you know, were surprised by, oh, you got that too? Great. So I think, so, Dan? Scott, did, so at the time that Gen West took over hosting, was it still a Excel spreadsheet? Were they just, were they putting the spreadsheet on their server? At what point did they move to the database format? Well, it was still a spread, it, it went over as a spreadsheet. And of course, Al, as soon as he saw that, started working on a database and it wasn't long, you know, John would explain it and Al would work on it. And they're going like, Hey, Scott, we've got something we'd like to show you. Well, everything they showed me for the next, what, 15 years was like, Oh my, that is so much beyond what we ever expected. So, I mean, they, they really supported our response community and continue to do so as a company. Um, and, uh, you know, and Sonia will talk a little about it as we go on here, but, what we have today and and what we started with uh you know it, it was definitely usable but uh you know it's uh it changed considerably so sonia larson at what point did you join this movement for developing the world and when did it gain the name at some point it it picked up this wrl moniker did that happen when it moved to gen west name i'm not sure scott when were you guys initially calling it the world so that would john came, of course this is one of those surprises that john would come in with and you know he came to one of the meetings and said look i've, I've i don't know if it's a license but i have the naming i have the name wrl.us and jen west uh, owns it and would you like to use that well big smile of course you know and uh, so uh, that's that's how that happens sonia and I think once it was being hosted by Gen West, it really started to be something that people could see on the internet. So it was something you could communicate more easily and people could even kind of stumble along. It is still as the world, essentially an Excel spreadsheet in a lot of ways, because one of the easy way, easiest ways to manipulate the data is just to download the data and filter it and sort it to find the things that you're looking for. 
I started working for Department of Ecology in 2008. And so that was after some initial uh, regulations were coming into play. And so Ecology had funded GenWest to build a bit more capability into the world database to help us to implement our new regulation. So that was one step in kind of some of the changes to the world equipment database. We use it for several different aspects of preparedness and response. On the preparedness side, we have an equipment verification program. So really all of the records that our primary response contractors, federal government calls them OSROs, all of their equipment records are being verified through an equipment verification process, which is site visits and also in drills and in spills. And the world was early set up as this is the universe of equipment. So these are the pieces of equipment that we're talking about. And as we standardize that equipment listing, we've been able to verify that what they say they have is where they say they have it. And that all plays into the planning standard verification and the contingency plans. So we've got a verification program of the equipment. And then we have a planning standard verification that's based on a model in our rule, which details for specific facility locations or transit locations across Washington state, what are the amounts of boom on water storage and recovery that are required over some timeframes. So very similar planning standard benchmarks to the federal government, but for Washington, we're using the world and a model that's based in regulation to run the equipment locations in world through a GIS database. So there's a lot that we're doing with the world as this foundational element to understanding where is the equipment and how are we prepared to respond across the state where we have some of the highest risk operations like pipelines, vessels and facilities, and now railroads. Uh, the other thing that we did in about 2012 was we actually, the, as Scott was mentioning, the world has always been completely voluntary to participate and completely free. So any equipment owner could join to part and be a participating organization with the world. What that meant was they would get a login and password and be able to update their equipment. When a world member joins the world, we're really identifying themselves through a directory of being the entity that you call to get that equipment information and also an inventory of what does my equipment look like and where is it and you know what do I have? And so as we've built out all of those participating organizations, the world has provided that resource inventory of equipment. And in 2012, we updated our requirements to say that this is the first time it was not really voluntary. We said that the PRCs actually had to put their equipment on the world and verify it quarterly. So not really voluntary, meaning not, not really. voluntary at all. <laughs> you could say that. You could say that. It doesn't have to be in the world. It could be a similar spreadsheet that has like the same type of content as the world. So it doesn't have to be maintained in the world, but it has to have that same structure because we we're trying to have the same structure across all of our different um, primary response contractors, the purpose of evaluating the equipment. And that what that really did was for all of the equipment that's staged in Washington and is being relied on to meet planning standards, it's allowed us to know that people have a stronger relationship to that equipment list in terms of it really is looked at regularly. 
if equipment is moved around, the list is updated. So it's been a, a good element to consistency of the world and to just data quality over time. Um, and, but yes, it wasn't fully voluntary. After <laughs> well, Scott had made a good point in, early on that people didn't want to put all of their equipment into a list because they didn't want to be bound to say, hey, all this stuff's going to stay in Washington you know, to, to meet these caps. I have more equipment than I'm required to have by the Coast Guard. So I'll list what I'm required to have, just that minimum, and I'll have this other cash that I'm free to kind of do whatever I want with. And for a long time, especially when I first came to Clean Sound and for years afterwards, MSRC, Clean Sound and later MSRC had equipment that wasn't on the world. But I think that's kind of gone, gone away. How does the state deal with the fact that I mean, you want all the equipment on the list. Everyone wants all of the equipment on the list. I want to have this inventory I can shop with when I need to go get equipment. And it's not to my benefit as a plan holder to, to not know what's available in the, in the country. So if I put list equipment on that's not required to meet my state obligations, how do you address that? So that's something that has another piece of this that has grown over time. And some of that growth came, you know, immediately after Deepwater Horizon oil spill because, because the world existed and because for all of the resources in the Northwest, there's a very clear picture of what do we have and a very easy way to order the resources that you were looking for. They might not be the closest to where the, you know, the spill was occurring or the need, but there was definitely a very quick kind of request for a lot of the resources from the Northwest. And I think Scott can piggyback on that, but ultimately what we've learned through kind of some iterations of our rule, rules and of our verification processes, yes, we want all of the equipment on there and the rule says how equipment moves out. So it has nothing to do with what's on the world, but it has to do with what is required for planning standards. At one point in the world database, there was a little checkbox check that you could check if it was for planning standards or not for planning standards. And that was an early step to try to sort between things that could easily move out of the area and things that were supposed to stay in the area because they're for planning standards. And we actually don't need that type of structure anymore because with our new GIS-based tool for looking at equipment, we're moving every piece of equipment from one point over the road or over the water to that planning standard area so we really can see that there is a lot of extra, well, I shouldn't call it extra, but there's depth in terms of the response capability and the ability to cascade resources out of the area, which is really what the whole system is based on, is more easily validated now than it was when we didn't have the GIS tools. It's a great tool. I'm glad the state uses it. But I do think we want to be clear for people who are, are listening that although the state does use it as part of their planning, we have people who are members of the world who have equipment that are in the world that have nothing to do with the, the state of Washington. We have equipment in the world from California, from Alaska, the Gulf Coast, the East Coast. There's some international equipment. The EPA has equipment. The Coast Guard has equipment. And then that equipment uh, doesn't meet state planning standards. So people shouldn't be afraid to join the world thinking that, oh, oh my gosh, 
Now the state of Washington is going to think they own the equipment. That is, I want to make sure that people know that's not the case and that I'm not throwing the state of Washington under the bus here. No, and I think, Dan, I think uh, originally it was set up for, you know, it was a Northwest equipment, uh, D-13, and, you know, principally Oregon and Washington, but it's, 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 it's grown. Um, some of those items that Sonia talks about is some of the friction of that growth. Um, and, but it was, al there's always been friction as to what are we going to list, where are we going to move forward? But as we've done it and, and used it in incident after incident, and then and or gone to other locations for spills and not had a rural database, huge difference. You know, I just as an equipment engineer, as a person that's accountable for the equipment, and Sonia is the same way, we are both of our jobs were structured around having that answer. And, you know, that that means you have access to that tool and you have rapid uh, the ability to rapidly sort out what's in there. And I'm not sure if it fits right here, but, you know, there are a number of databases out there that are also, you know, national. Coast Guard has one. It's called the RRI, but it's principally used um, for um, certifying OSROs. And so industry provides their equipment, and then the Coast Guard can do certain things with that equipment. But what we learned during Deepwater Horizon when we wanted to sort that database we would come up with the parameters. I'd like to know where all the Desmi skimmers are, the, you know, the Desmi 250 skimmers are in the United States. Who has them and what's our contact? Well, that's a few seconds in the world to sort that. The way the database is set up for the Coast Guard, that was a request to National Strike Force Coordination Center who took it to Martinsburg and then all night, someone worked on trying to sort out their equipment list. And by the next morning, they could provide us a list of that equipment. But that's, that's a totally different thing. That, so that database does OSROs, but this, the world does response. It's, an, you know, it's built for response. It's built for responders. Um, so I just wanted to plug that in there too. Because some folks ask, well, I'm already doing the RRI. Why would I do the world? And there are good reasons for both. One of the features that I, I love about the world, in, in my job as a response manager, where I'm taking initial oil spill calls and then getting on the phone with the uh, OSRO to mobilize uh, equipment, I, I want to be able to identify it easily. And every organization identifies it differently. But whenever you put a piece of equipment into the world database, it's assigned a unique identifier. That number, uh, generally a four or five digit number, we might be up to six digit numbers by now, I'm not, I'm not sure. They were always four, and now I know there's at least five. But that number is unique. If I put that number on a resource request on a 213RR, it's unambiguous what I'm looking for, right? We can identify it quickly. So I love that about the, the database. It doesn't matter whether it's MSRC's equipment or NRC's equipment or CPRO or uh, whoever it is, you know, it has that unique identifier that transcends individual companies' uh, internal tracking, just so important. I found that useful myself during Deepwater Horizon. I find it useful on a, a weekly, monthly basis when I'm working on spills and, and even exercises here in the Pacific Northwest. 
Well, the other thing that I love about the world is the effort that's put in to doing type and kind. I don't know that everybody uh, agrees on type and kind even even now, but the the lexicon, the the identifiers, the work that's been put in in the Pacific Northwest by the steering committee to put that information together and make it consistent and adapt since Deepwater Horizon and as technology has moved on with equipment like drones, both aerial and subsea, with capping equipment, with subsea equipment. Uh, even though th there are, are no drilling rigs in the Pacific Northwest, the world still has that kind of subsea information in the database and to be able to use that is so important. And we weren't really doing that well in Deepwater Horizon. I'll tell a little story. I, I, would, I would sit, I was part of the recovery group down there and I'd have somebody come to me for about a week. They'd come to me every day with this list and they'd say, how many fast crew boats do you have? It's like fast crew boats. Uh, I have 32 uh, oil spill response vessels and 64 work boats. Yeah, but it says you have 12 fast crew boats. And they couldn't get it through their head that I, I didn't care what the owner was calling them when they were running crews or doing dives or whatever they were doing with them, that once they were in my recovery group, either they were recovering oil, in which case they were an OSRV, or they were supporting that work, in which case they were a workboat. Every time a resource order would come in, whatever was written on it, it got put in the database that way. So you had we had this sort of this unreconcilable list. And I seem to recall, I don't know if this is something that you can talk about, but I seem to recall you being an area command later on in the response, trying to put some order to that resource situation. Yes, I was an area command. I went to area command as a resource unit leader within probably four hours of getting there, I be, we established something called the critical resource unit, which we looked, just looked at like five major pieces of equipment. And, you know, I, we got, I got there in April, I left in July. And basically with that, we looked at, you know, for us, we looked at burn, boom, boom, skimmers, vessels, and in, a, in another item or two, I can't recall all of them, but that's, we had specific control of ordering and uh, going for those resources. And then we would distribute those items to our uh, different uh, commands out in the field. And the, we had a, a wonderful database that was used uh, to spill. However, it didn't really have any parameters when you input the equipment. So, and there was a large latitude of people that could put equipment. So you could be at the, you know, it, it, out in the woods, putting in your equipment list and whatever you decided to call that vessel, you called it. And whatever you decided to call that boom, you called that boom. And whatever you decided to call any piece of equipment, you just made it up and typed it in. And that was going on hundreds and thousands of things a day. Well, eventually, Back at Area Command, we had to answer questions for senators and representatives and, and even the president's office. Um, you know, they'd want to know exactly how many feet of this you had or how many of these skimmers you had. Even though the software was capable of totaling those things, there was no common resource, uh, you know, category. And uh, so that's something that we worked on. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But that's something we, we 
tried to solve after the fact. And that's something that we've now incorporated into the world. That kind of touches on what you're talking about, Dan. You saw it at the field level. We were seeing all of that stuff come back to us as something that we just couldn't we couldn't even sort out. We, they tried to. They, there was a small group that spent about a week trying to sort it out during the spill, but it was too late. Um, so that, that horse was out of the barn. Yeah, I just find the resource typing and kind in the world really valuable. And the, and the description I often use is training is, you know, I, I want to order a tennis ball. And somebody has that tennis ball come in and they're putting it into the database. It's like, oh, it's a green ball. All right. Or it's a fuzzy ball or a furry ball or a felt ball. So all of a sudden I've got felt balls, fuzzy balls, green balls, tennis balls. Well, I want tennis balls. Well, I don't have any tennis balls. What do you have? I have fuzzy balls. Well, I don't want fuzzy balls. I want tennis balls. And so we have the things that we need, but we don't know that we have the things that we need which really goes all the way back to the findings of Firescope and the creation of ICS in the first place, right? Common terminology, common resource types. And you just get so many people. I mean, there were 80,000 people on Deepwater Horizon. So it's not surprising that there were some inconsistencies. Not that anybody did it on purpose. It's just, that's the way it comes out. Well, and along with that, you know, if a US Senator is asking you, you know, for how many fuzzy balls do you have, or how many blue, you know, how many ships you have, or how many, you know, how much boom you have, and you can't sort it, it goes to your professional ability to answer the question. And then that's never a place where an equipment person wants to be an equipment person. This is black and white. It's numbers. It's one, two, three, there's a thousand, whatever the case may be, but you have to get it defined into categories and you have to make it workable. Maybe it's time to touch a little on that Deepwater Horizon uh, international offers of assistance, Dan. I think that's great because that's kind of when we went from being the Western uh, response resource list to being the world response resource list. We took a, took a big step as we exported this database to the rest of the maritime community. And that's true. And uh, I think, you know, what, once we uh, once we got into place and realized some of the magnitude of this and, you know, uh, bottom line that, you know, BP, I'm, I'm not sure in the four months I was there, they ever said no to equipment order that I came up with or found. And I was involved with BP vice president presidents. And then we had a bunch of technical specialists. Probably I was an equipment technical specialist to BP at, in that critical resource unit. And so we had a, we had the horsepower to buy and purchase. Uh, we had great support from, you know, their logistics chain. And early on, I would ask people, well, what, you know, uh, you know, one of the things I did is I asked uh, Tom Davis and Jim Rydell from, from their experience and, 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 you know, basically with the Exxon spill, is, hey, what would you do? And they thought about it overnight. And Jim called back the next day and said, Scott, I would call Wally Landry and I would with Crucial and I would try to corner that market. Well, we called Wally on a Sunday, you know, he was in and he said, I said, hey, Wally, you know, we're, we're looking to, to corner, the, you know, the, his pom-pom market. And Wally produces about half of the pom-poms that's available in the world. Parker Environmental produces the other half and they're already spoken for. They go to to the companies that were working for us 
but Wally still had his and said, Wally, let's, let's cut a deal. And Wally says, I've been waiting for this call. I want to just do one, you know, one purchase. And so we turned that over to BP logistics and I kid you not within two hours, I think, you know, they had a, a long-term contract in place and a, what we call the spec order for, you know, plus $10 million. Um, so, you know, we were off and running and that was kind of the spill for the next four months. One of the other items I, I worked on as we worked, uh, I, I got to meet, uh, the European, Europeans, uh, EMSA, uh, European, European Maritime Safety Association. Um, and that was Bernard Blum. And I, and he had been one of the equipment people on the prestige spill. And I asked him, Hey, Bernard, what's, what was the biggest mistake you made on that spill as far as equipment? And he said, you know, I took everything. So not only did I have to get the stuff out in the field and get it, you know, working on the oil, I had to take equipment that we didn't need and I had to find warehousing for it. So I spent a lot of warehousing equipment that we're never going to use, going to send. So that became kind of the key piece when we started to get these international offers of assistance. And obviously that spill attracted the attention of the world. And so the State Department was inundated with countries and foreign desks offering equipment. And so, and it's a little different from the standpoint of, you know, when there's an earthquake somewhere in the world where you offer water and, and humanity things, you know, this wasn't, these were international offers of assistance that came from companies, organizations, manufacturers in their countries that were offering it through the United States to be purchased by BP. So it, it's a little different flavor uh, taking on that equipment than just offering and then it's free. Um, so there were pieces to that. So we had, you know, we had long, every day we had a half hour call on offers of assistance. Well, at the end of the spill, um, we realized, you know, there's really some issues here and that we should probably look at that. And Heather Parker and myself and Bob Pond, um, pretty much set us up, but we were able to work with the international community and produce an IMO document, uh, which became the guidance for international offers of assistance in the response to marine oil spill, uh, an oil pollution incident. And, you know, that document, basically, it, it just it goes into minutia on how international offers of assistance are made, how they're paid for, What's the logistics of them? What are the five basic mechanisms for requests and offers? And in all of that, they're in customs and legal. And you know, who if I'm asking for it from your country, do I fly it? Do you fly? Do you push it? Do I push it? Do I pull it? Whatever the case may be. And you know, a lot of this is significant logistics. Well, in that document, we created something called the common lexicon for and personnel types. And that is probably the first type and kind, we called it, we didn't call it type and kind, but we called it lexicon. That lexicon is probably the first international effort at trying to get to what we call type and kind here. And so to get those equipment categories that, you know, what are the categories that we're going to put in this IMO document that are going to be this base document? 
So we went and looked at the equipment categories that various organizations put together that list equipment. So we went, we looked at, and I'm just going to read them off here. We went to these different organizations who all had equipment lists and we put them in a spreadsheet. So that was ITOF, ASTM, the World Catalog of Oil Spill Products, ISCO, REMPEC, the U.S. Coast Guard RRI, Scopic, and the world. And uh, so with looking at all of those equipment pieces and what they listed and what they thought was important, uh, we took all of those and we came up with 19 items uh, that represented um, all of those items that eventually became what today is in the world and, and what we call um, you know, our categories, our resource categories. That really, I think, from the standpoint of becoming the world database, that was one of the significant pieces because all of a sudden we had an international document to reference. We had these categories and then, and we did uh, do capabilities, which is kind and tight. We did capabilities in the document itself. So there's an annex in the IMO document that has this information in it, which then we brought over to the world. And then there was, you know, as drones came on board and as uh, capping stacks came on. Now, I think we had capping stacks in the original one, but you know, we, we tweaked a few things, but not much. And that's our, we stay really close to this IMO document. As a community, after that IMO document was developed, we looked at all of the kind, top, kind type lexicon and we decided to adopt it into WORL. So the and in, in, in essence, a lot of the kind and type was developed based on the resources we had in Western, you know, US, Washington, Oregon area. And then when we decided to adopt the IMO, we built a lot more capability for listing equipment. And we've seen two things happen. As we went to the worldwide, we've got now contractors who previously only included their equipment that was staged in this area. Now they've listed their equipment across the entire continental US. And we've been able to bring in more equipment that's in Alaska and you know throughout the throughout the world really because we've adopted this lexicon that's more formalized that is driven by the IMO document. So that has been the real change is we had a lot of kind typing in our initial iterations of world, but we adopted the IMO lexicon, which standardized us even further and beyond things that we have here to things that people want to track and measure, you know, worldwide. So yes, we don't have stacking or uh, capping kind of tools because we don't have subsea. Um, well, we don't have, we don't have wells. production. Yeah. Or um, exploration. Exploration. That was the word I wanted. You're cutting that. But we do have the ability to track those things within our greater lexicon because we've standardized it for all the types of equipment that might be relevant. And that's another thing that we've seen as we've been mapping all of the equipment on the world. So every piece of equipment on the world has that unique world ID. It has the resource kind and type. So we've been able to really define what it is, where, and then also a latitude and longitude for where is it in the world. And for a long time, you know, we've had our oil spill response organizations that are in Washington, Oregon area, but now also including their equipment across the US. We have state, federal, and provincial government equipment all now posted on the world. So we've tried 
to embrace as many entities as possible because the list gets bigger and bigger and more useful across complex events that rely on equipment cascading. Right, that's what we want, right? We that's want we this want. to be the, the list. There should be no other list. We would list. love it if everybody would join the party and we just had more and more equipment on there. Certainly. Right. If they join the party, did they get a toaster? Is there like steak they, knives? They get to feel good about their contribution to readiness. <laughs> there's no prizes. No prizes. <laughs> the world is free to join, so there's no prizes. But maybe that's something we can work out in the future. So no how does somebody join the world? I've got equipment. I wanna I wanna add it. Do I contact you? Do I contact Jen West? How do I go about that? So the best thing to do is to contact our host, Jen West, directly. So when you contact Jen West and inquire about becoming a participating organization, they're going to ask you that you're an equipment owner. So we really only want people to list the equipment that they own. You're not going to list things that you can subcontract or things that you don't actually control. And then they'll work to give you a, a login and an organization name and help you to add all of your equipment to the world database. And then you'll be part of the community who regularly talks about how to make the world better and better for our use over time. So that brings us to the steering committee. There is a, a group that helps to, to manage this. You sit on that group. Can you tell us about the steering committee? So the steering committee had some different participants over time, but ultimately it's Jen West leading it often have industry representatives who come and communicate things that they'd like changed in the world or new capabilities that they'd like built into the world. And then ecology and the Coast Guard also sit on the steering committee. And the idea is just a body of folks who support the governance of the world so that we have some consistent idea about if we make a change, if we change a heading in a column in the database, who does that impact? You know, if people are pulling this data into other data systems or tracking the data through um, mapping or other tools, making changes can impact people's ability to use the information. So we like to be very thoughtful about changes to the world and the steering committee helps to bring lessons learned from a drill or new capabilities that we'd like to see through the process in a really consistent way. Generally, the steering committee meets a few times a year. There's a lot of discussion that happens before each world annual meeting. So we try to have a meeting annually where we invite all of the participant organizations or other just interested world users to come and hear about changes that we're proposing on the world and provide feedback about what those changes would look like or if there's new things that we should be considering. So there's sometimes meetings ahead of that annual meeting. And we, we use the world uh, here in the Northwest as uh, at which we reference instead of listing the equipment in the area contingency plan, uh, the area contingency plan actually references the document and its location. And so it gives us the ability to have a really clean updated database 24 seven versus being posted and being uh, your area plan is several years old and hasn't been updated. Um, this alone, I think, is significant uh, for Coast Guard members. The other part of that is the Marine Spill Response Corporation lists every piece of equipment they have across the United States. So that's across all the captain of the port zones. So 
for Coast Guard members, you already have a significant piece of your response when you do your drills and exercises. That equipment's there. It's in a type and kind format. So you have that tool, uh, which you know I think it's a little easier to sleep at night being able to know you have those tools out there. And obviously, Dennis McCarthy's put his equipment on from uh, Clean Harbors Cooperative in New York Harbor. Uh, we've got equipment from the Burlington Northern Santa Fe because of with you know moving um, oil from uh, North Dakota on rail and rail cars. Um, we've got the Canadian Pacific Railway. They're involved. Just you know a significant amount of good response corporation, good response community. And what's what's interesting about this is Sonia mentioned that annual meeting. We invite every one of these uh, people to the meeting. So each year and they can, and we have a talk. And so it's much better to get to know these folks ahead of time before we have a spill or before something happens that we're in an incident command post. Um, and you know, certainly meetings and the ability to have the community meet like this is significant. And finally, just, you know, we even have the Lummi Nation, one of our uh, local uh, uh, tribal communities is also has equipment and lists it. So we have a, a wide um, swath of equipment, but we're interested in equipment from any continent um, hosting this. It's a great way to get your equipment out there in, in, as far as even being known to exist and for your organization to become part of this community. So if I'm not a member, I don't own equipment, like I, I work for the Washington State Maritime Cooperative, and we don't own equipment, but I want access to the data that's in the world. How do I how do I get that? It's a great question, Dan. Well, thank you, thank you, Sonia. So anyone can access the world as a guest. You don't need any login credential or password. When you go to the world website, you just enter the database as a guest, and then the world is available for download in multiple formats. So you can search the world in the database by just putting key terms into the search, or you can download the entire world database as an Excel spreadsheet and look for the resources that you're trying to find that way. Yeah, that's generally the way the way I do it. That's the way most people do it. Yeah. So there's two formats that that Jen West has set up for the Excel spreadsheet, which is really great. The the first is uh a sheet separated workbook so that each worksheet of the workbook is a separate organization's equipment. That's generally how I like to download it. It's easier to, to zip along looking at the, the worksheet headers, find NRC or MSRC or whoever it is that I'm looking for, then, then there's their equipment. But you can also download it as a single workbook. And if person was going to take that information and import it into another database application, that second Excel format is probably the better way. You can also download it as a comma separated file, which is great. And you can download it as a DB database file. Well, and I think, and I'm going to let Sonia address it, but there's even more, um, you know, the, it's gone well beyond just a database. Sonia? And I think this is a future topic of your podcast, which we'll all be tuning into to people who love the world, because the world is really that directory and inventory 
and where it gets pulled into the full capability of resource tracking for an incident drill or a spill would be through WorldTrack, or as Dan was mentioning, pulling that um, complete equipment list into another system. So there is a lot of capability that goes beyond WORL. WORL isn't the resource tracking tool. WORL is the database of information that's standardized and consistent that gets pulled into other tools and is interoperable with those other tools for the purposes of tracking in a spill or a drill. Well, you're absolutely right, Sonia. We are having Jen West on for a future podcast where we will talk about World Track and World Track Web and how it's used to track resources for both drills and spills. Jen West has come to the last two worst case drills that that I have designed and facilitated and done all the resource tracking for those exercises using World Track Web. And they've done it, but also the responsible party personnel in the resource unit have logged in and done it. It was a, a collective group, and I am going to use it as the resource tracking tool for the Washington State Maritime Cooperative worst case exercise coming up here later in 2021. So it's an amazing, amazing tool. And yeah, sometime in the next few weeks, we'll be putting out a new podcast that'll talk about all of its capabilities in nauseating detail. <laughs> well, I, I think it is important with that whole question of who would put their equipment on the world. And if I put it there, does it mean someone accesses it that I don't necessarily want to? And so the world being a platform that you can use to build your equipment list because it makes your life easier when you have a spill to manage your own equipment is one aspect of it. And then the the equipment being available if you get cold and someone needs your resources being another. But just listing your equipment on the world does not mean every single person has access to it or has the ability to call it out. And the world is really built on each equipment record being tied to an individual that needs to be called so that you can validate that you can order that piece of equipment and incorporate it into your spill response. So it's not just you get whatever you want, you know, whenever you want it from the world. There really, in some cases, have to be pre-existing contracts or relationships in order to be able to utilize specific equipment on the world. So that's just an important aspect of joining supports your ability to do this tracking because we've created more powerful tools for that. But also the equipment on the world is still based on as available for people who are sharing that or, you know, for higher purposes. That's a very good point. But it also makes it so much easier to understand what's out there and who to go and ask. So if I'm receiving a resource request from operations, it's asking me for you know four additional one-foot Marco belt skimmers, and I can go to the world and I can see, oh, look, Clean Rivers Cooperative has two in Portland, and the U.S. Navy has three at... Manchester and uh, MSRC has one in Astoria. And I can go in and use those world numbers and say, I'm requesting these and here are the contacts. And now logistics knows where to go. Now, will they be able to get those? Maybe and maybe not. But at least they know where to start and where that piece of equipment is. And when I put down that world ID number, on my resource request, I know that they're gonna at least be looking for 
exactly what I want, as opposed to saying, hey, I want another skimmer, right? And then, you know, then maybe the park responder with its Transrex skimmer rated at 10,500 barrels a day shows up, or I get a duckbill skimmer to go on the end of a vac hose. I mean, they're both skimmers, right? And if the person doesn't know what I want, who knows what I'm going to get? That's why we do kind and tight, right? <laughs> it, it is. I'll just talk about one, uh, just a, one of the stories from Deepwater Horizon. One of the issues at Deepwater Horizon was uh, they were in, the, at the time of the spill, they were in the transition to creating a one golf area plan, a one golf plan. And the piece that they didn't have completed was the equipment list. So when we all arrived there, we did not have a list, really a quiz, equipment list uh, that was open to people that were cascading in from all over the country and all over the world. Um, so, you know, obviously the contractors knew equipment they had and, and others, and we were just ordering it up. And, you know, there were organizations providing equipment, uh, you know, voluntarily. But if you don't have that equipment, one of the solutions was um, we, we, we looked at the ocean busters or busters. So when we got there, we were looking for, well, how do we get busters? And, and you know, the spill itself, the, Ex, the Exxon Valdez spill was one time a one incident. It had a particular type of oil that weathered and, uh, and that was it. And at the end of that, you know, one or two skimmers, the, the screw skimmers, positive displacement screw pumps and the Igma pools were really the only thing that would move that heavy oil. At Deepwater Horizon, in, in essence, we had a spill every minute. Um, we had fresh oil all the time. And one of the capable things uh, was the buster technology is what we found. And because of the size and because of where we were, the ocean busters are what we wanted. Well, finding those ocean busters, Mark Plain had sold a lot of those. And Mark was able to go to the manufacturer and say, tell us to every person or every company in the world that you've ever delivered an ocean buster, current buster, harbor buster. We had those lists and then basically went down that list and said to each one of those companies, if you provide that buster to us for our spill, we'll put you in line for manufacturing a new buster and send it to you when the time comes. So there's various ways to find your equipment, but obviously that was a tremendous amount of work. Uh, it would have been much easier to have had a, a whirl or an equipment list uh, that was more inclusive. You know, Dan, I, you know, to your question earlier, um, you know, just, you know, what would be my wish? Uh, what would be, what would really cap off the world and really cap this uh, equipment list is getting the organization OSRL involved and getting them on board. Um, it just, it crosses that border. Uh, we've had Norwegian equipment on, on the list, but uh, OSRL and, and, you know, and their reaches uh, would be a significant step forward. So OSRL, if you listen to this podcast, call us. We'll hook you up. All right. Boy, we uh, churned up a couple hours there, huh? Yeah, we sure That's did. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Tactics Meeting. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend, send a tweet, make a post to Facebook, help spread the word. If you have a question or suggestion for a topic, you can email me 
The address is dansmiley at mac.com.